0: In spring of 2014, an anonymous letter surfaced alleging that schools in Birmingham were at the centre of an Islamist plot to spread and embed extremist ideology in the UK. Despite the letter being quickly discredited as a hoax, it generated a media frenzy and prompted a Department for Education investigation, led by Peter Clark, the ex-national head of counter-terrorism. Clark's report didn't find any evidence of radicalisation, terrorism or violent extremism, but it contained allegations of a pattern of worrying behaviour amongst Muslim governors and teaching staff, and many lost their careers in education the dominant narrative amongst Britain's media and political establishment is that even if the Trojan horse letter was a fraud, the subsequent investigations into Birmingham schools uncovered problems which were very, very real. And as a result, life for British Muslims and how the state related to them changed dramatically. Despite the basis for that transformation of education, surveillance and policing policy being widely known as a hoax, No one has been that bothered about identifying the source of the fraud. That is until the Trojan Horse Affair, an eight part documentary by Serial and the New York Times presented by Brian Reed and Hamza Syed, came out earlier this month. And I've been lucky enough to get the chance to pick their brains about what they found out. By the way, this interview is going to contain spoilers. So if you're not into that kind of thing, turn back, listen to the entirety of the Trojan Horse Affair podcast, and then come back to me later. So this isn't the first time that journalists have revisited the Trojan horse affair. The BBC did a documentary, The Guardian did a long read, but this is the first time that anyone seems to have dedicated themselves just to finding out who wrote the anonymous letter and what kicked everything off. So why do you think no one was that interested in finding out who wrote the letter?
1: As you explain to me. (laughs) You explain (laughs) to me. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There was, it, I feel like it because, I mean, you jump in here, Brian, in terms of what your thoughts are, but, like, I think it so quickly escalated, the scandal. Like, the first news reports about this anonymous letter that turned up in Birmingham were followed so quickly by just a wave of allegations that started coming out of the schools. that I think people just got... I like to think people got disorientated. I like to think people just, like, very quickly moved on from it because of how much noise was emanating from these schools about what was happening there. Um... And the letter just became like, well, who cares about this kind of, um, you know, this, this, this triggering document? Um, let's very quickly start dealing with what sounds like serious issues that are coming out of these schools, which, okay, I'm like, I can kind of understand. But if you are then dealing with those allegations in, in a way that I understand, which is trying to gather facts, trying to gather evidence, you know, um, and for as long as it remained in like kind of the spectrum of allegations, without much follow-up or evidence to support it, then I was like, I feel like the document that, that started this whole, the Trojan horse letter, that deserves some attention now because I'm not understanding what's happening. I don't know what's happening. I'm seeing a lot of articles coming up with a lot of allegations. But no one's providing evidence. No one's providing some some facts here. And this document that started it all, it's very much just fallen off. Like, nobody cares about that anymore. Um, so that's kind of where my head I mean, nobody cares at. about it, but yet...
2: It was this weird rhetorical two step where it was kind of like we don't care about the document, but the idea of the document is shot through everything that's happening here. You know, like it's you know, mm. we've seen it in the reporting, like like the idea of um, collusion and like a Muslim plot, you know, is shot through the interviews that are happening with the investigators, with w- witnesses, with um you know, interviews that people from the schools are giving to the press and the papers like it's all shot through with the through, you know, with this idea of a plot. So you can't like to me, it's on the it's on the government and journalists to disaggregate that misinformation from, you know, what is a legitimate debate possibly to have about the role of religion in schools, you know, like like that is the, the job like everybody should be mitigating against that piece of misinformation. So you can't both say the letter's not important. We've moved past that but the whole framing of this conversation is from the letters still, you know?
0: I mean, I guess I want to I get your take on this, Brian, because throughout the podcast, you have this ongoing litigation between the ideals of journalism and the self-image of journalistic practice and the reality of journalism, particularly how you, how you be a journalist and also be someone who is racialized and minoritized. But it's, it's kind of weird to me that this seems so obvious... So obviously within the ideals of journalism, which is debunk, stick to the facts, you know, copper bottom everything. And yet British journalists seemed stuck only looking at the effects and the impacts and the ramifications of this bomb that went off. But no one tried to look at who planted it.
2: I think that's true. I, yeah. If you're asking me to kind of explain that, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, that is something that, just as an outsider looking at this, you know, I, you know, having no previous familiarity with the Trojan horse affair before Hamza pitched it to me backstage in an event one night some years <laughs> on, um, I don't know. Like, maybe that, that, that obviously helped because I didn't have preconceptions about what this, this event was, I think. And when I looked at it, it just seemed like a story that was missing a beginning, like it was a story where the whole beginning had been glossed over. You know, at the time like there was there was a really a really strong, really good um narrative long-form piece in The Guardian um by by a reporter named Samir Shackle about the Trojan Horse affair, you know, talks about how the plot was not actually a plot, it was a fake plot, gets into the allegations that were made around, you know, what was happening at Parkview School, a really well-done piece that's still missing the beginning. So I like even that stuff where I was looking to get more clarity just on this event that I was new to. Like I still felt like I don't understand what happened here, and why is this hole here in this story? And it seems like a hole worth filling, but I don't know why exactly.
0: I mean, I mean, Hamza, was it important that it was an outsider that you partnered with? So an American, someone who was outside the world and the orbit of British journalism or was it just like he's doing an event and the security (laughs) is really lax so I am getting backstage and
1: Uh, both Uh, no I'm (laughs) kidding it was um, no it was it was just because I remember um, whatever conversations I had had about the Trojan Horse Affair with people who knew about it um, I just knew that they they weren't listening to the bit of the story I wanted them to focus on you know when I would speak about this letter they would just have in their heads like the countless articles, the countless reports, investigative documents. And the idea that this letter was somehow going to debunk all of that just didn't seem to connect with them. Um, and I, would, I was hoping that he didn't know about the story. I knew like, you know, there was a few outlets I covered in America, but I was just hoping I'd need to come across someone who doesn't know about this story. Because I feel like if I could stand someone who stand opposite someone who doesn't and speak about this letter that's, that, that surfaced and what it, ha- what it went on to do, um, I thought I could get them to kind of like um, take in the story in the way I had. So here comes Brian Reid now. He hadn't heard about this letter. He hadn't heard about the story. And like I said, in the room, there was a BBC reporter next to him. And as I started talking about the Trojan horse and talking about this letter, this BBC reporter did exactly as you would expect someone who knows about the story to do. Just be like, yeah, 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 oh, story. Yeah, you know, Trojan horse, Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't think that's just uh, – uh, that doesn't speak to, like, the two different characters in terms of these people. I just think here's someone who knows the story in the BBC person, and here's Brian who doesn't. And I could just tell in the room, there's one person who was listening to what I was saying, and the other person wasn't. Um, and so, yeah, it was important. It was important to find someone who wasn't familiar with the story. It just happened to be Brian um, was passing through my city at the right time.
2: And just to say, like, I brought it back and pitched it to my colleague, like a staff of – journalists at the uh, the radio show This American Life and you know 20 people or 15 people who'd not heard of the story all thought it was really interesting and good <laughs> like and a good question like the question of who wrote the letter being the, the driving question of the story you know.
0: I mean so so let's get into the driving question of the story so this is a point where there are spoilers if there are people listening to this and they're not the kind of person who like reads movie synopses before going to see a film then listen to the podcast come back um appreciate that the podcast (laughs) i mean it's kind of like a spoiler klaxon (laughs) um because i actually love spoilers i hate being surprised in films um we'll 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 say that for the end but uh the podcast presents a, a theory for the origins of the trojan horse letter that a head teacher at local primary school uh rizvana dar wrote it in order to support her position when she was in a dispute with four teaching assistants. Now, she didn't participate in the podcast, so I don't know. We don't know what she makes of this theory, and the evidence which is presented to back it up is circumstantial. So you don't have a confession. You don't have a O.J. Simpson, if I did it, document <laughs> floating around. That's right, that yeah. I know of. <laughs> um, but it, it seems, to me anyway, to be quite a compelling theory it seems to fit lots of the facts in place so what's happened since do you know about other journalists putting these allegations to ms dar is birmingham is birmingham city council going like she's still a head teacher at this primary school someone should maybe get to the bottom of it what's going on
2: <laughs> nothing as far as we know nothing <laughs> nothing
1: it's so surreal Ash. it's so surreal um <laughs> This podcast, last I checked, was, was doing quite well. People are listening, you know. Um, someone did a screenshot on Twitter the other day saying like, so here's a podcast that seems to be number one in the UK charts, and no follow-up, no questions, no reporters. Not even, um, listen, national reporters to a certain extent, there's a lot happening in Britain, you know, so maybe I can understand it to a certain extent. But nothing locally, you know what I mean? Like no local paper, not one reporter, nothing. Is, no one's decided to just go ask a few basic questions. I don't that... think the BBC has done
2: a single thing. And again, I'm not under the impression. I'm not like delusional. This is the this podcast and is the biggest story. But I think it's a story. Like there's, you know, it's worth <laughs> some coverage. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as far as we can tell, like we don't know that the Birmingham City Council has done anything, certainly publicly that we're aware of that the Adderley, you know, governing body has done anything that we're aware of. Um, We just don't know.
0: I mean, can I ask, has anyone disputed you guys on the facts of the podcast?
2: No. No, the facts of the theory about Rizvon Dar, yeah. And just to be clear, the theory is that, you know, it was, you know, written possibly by Rizvon Dar or possibly someone else or possibly her and someone else. But with the motivation, the purpose of um, influencing this this employment um, dispute and possible criminal investigation she was facing. Um, so just to be clear, like that's that's the theory. And, and again, we don't have definitive proof of it, but um, I don't think we've I mean, had a dispute of any of the facts around the theory.
1: We had a um, kind of like a, a, a letter from the Birmingham City Council at one point during our reporting to say That's like right. yeah. um, the suggestion mm-hmm. that the Trojan Horse that I came from anything to do with the school or Rizvana Dar is um, wholly baseless and you know um, yeah and we include that in the show
2: but we spent a long time following up with them saying what evidence are you basing that on so basically in the course of our reporting like at one point the Birmingham City Council wrote us a letter. Which we talk about um in episode seven, largely and um and in that letter, they said, any suggestion that Rezvonada wrote or, you know the Trojan horse letter or was behind it is false um, now that was interesting to us because the council's posture has always been we never looked into the authorship of the letter. We were never interested mm. in the veracity of the letter, the authenticity of the letter, who wrote the letter like. From the leader on down, you know, we interviewed the leader of the council at the time. He said that it's clear in the report that the council commissioned. We interviewed the investigator, the guy in Kershaw who did the investigation. He was clear I didn't look into who wrote the letter. So we were like, how do you know she didn't write it if you never investigated who did or whether it was even authentic? And we asked them that in response. We said, what evidence are you basing this statement on to us? And we, they wouldn't respond. We actually turned that request into a FOIA so that they were legally um, obliged to respond. To provide us as a FOIA like release, any evidence or information they were basing that statement on that she didn't write the letter, they would not provide it. Um, so we, you know, we've not been shown any evidence to back up that statement at all. They just denied that she wrote it. We don't know how they I mean, would know well, that.
0: <laughs> throughout the podcast, people keep threatening to call the cops on both of you. um <laughs> that happens, threatening- a, lot, that happens yeah.
1: a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And like, um, both on and off the obviously, clock you yeah, know it's
1: like,
0: yeah, yeah. Ob- obviously people can't see you but like you guys don't really look like hard nuts do you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> you, I, you don't want to see me when like... I'm mad Ash you know when I get a scowl on <laughs> um, you know everyone's five foot two and they're sitting down mm-hmm. um, but this experience of navigating what's essentially a local government story right. there was an awful lot of Legal threats, uh, threats and injunction. From an American perspective, was that kind of weird that you know these piddly little local councils are all you know talking about going to the high court?
2: I mean, it was weird. I mean, the idea of an injunction is weird to me as an American. That was the weirdest thing. Uh, We don't have like like that. You know, prior an injunction being you know like um, someone who doesn't want. Uh, A story to come out can go, you know, go to a court and get a judge to um, muzzle a reporter, for instance, or like say you can't report certain things that is essentially unheard of in the U.S., you know, Um, because we have the First Amendment, you know, we don't have prior restraint like that. So that idea, like when we got that injunction threat, I was so disoriented and confused that that could even happen and that everybody like lawyers and Hamza and Hamza's journalism professor who was kind of like our... uh, you know, advisor we would get beers with and stuff. Um, like, we're just talking about that as if this is like a normal thing you have to deal with because it just um, was so absurd to me that, I don't know, it's so ant- antithetical to, you know, how I'm used to working, basically.
0: I mean, there's there's one point which I found really funny where Hamza, you talk about, you know, Brian is surprised at all these people threatening to call the police. And you're like, this is a day in the life of being an ethnic minority. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess there's two parts to this question. One is about how your position as being a British Muslim impacted the experience of reporting on the story. And then the second thing is way surprised that, you know, you have this, you know, well-regarded, experienced podcaster white dude and doors getting slammed in his face. So you're like, the wages of whiteness aren't worth what they used to be, you know? Like, inflation has and... meant that this is not buying as much. I was
1: very disappointed with the currency of the white man next to me. Um, <laughs> I was convinced he was going to be my sledgehammer to open doors. Um, no, as far as, like, being a British Pakistani uh, reporting on the story, like, it was something I was determined to keep at bay at the beginning because I did... I, I knew what that meant. I knew what that meant in terms of here's a British Pakistani from Birmingham reporting on a story about British Pakistanis who live in Birmingham. Um, what does that mean in terms of the story that, that, that he's telling us? Can I trust the story that he's telling us? And I was so paranoid about that thought at the very beginning um, that I was just actively mitigating against my own self for, for a while. Um, I remember the first interview we did with um, uh, former council leader, Sra And it was about two hours long or something like this. And it's like the first week of reporting. I've just met Brian. This is like day two or three of us together. And I just, I was in this room and I just kept reminding myself, you're a reporter, you're a reporter. Don't say anything, you're Mm -hmm. a reporter. Don't say anything, you're a reporter now, you know? And my blood is- Don't say anything. Yeah, just like, listen, that's what you're supposed to do now. You're supposed to listen as a reporter. There's a microphone and all you're entitled to do with it is stick it under someone's chin and have them speak into it. That's your job, apparently. Um, And I did that for about two hours and in the process got like really mad internally. So when we left the building, I just started (laughs) venting. I just started going wild, you know, about like just what happened, the stuff that I wish I would have said in the room. Essentially, I was just like, this is crazy, this is crazy. And he's recording that whole thing. And that was just the first interview. And I knew from then I was like, I'm in trouble here. Like, I am in trouble. Mm. Like, if this is how little appetite I have to sit here with someone speaking essentially about people who I identify with and speaking in this way. And my only role is to, supposed to just stay quiet and, and listen to it. I worry for myself in this process. Um, but then there's something that happened in in, in in the course of reporting that meant that like... I was outed in some sense in terms of like oh he is a british pakistani muslim guy and um (laughs) you know and after that point it was like listen in the moment it felt like a apocalyptic event like i thought it was over i thought the story was done i thought Mm. my career was done i was just like okay it's game over um but once we moved past that it was so liberating it was so liberating Mm. because i just felt like now i can just do the rest of this reporting just being myself there's nothing to hide anymore and I just I, was, I just felt more sure of what I was doing in the rooms from there on.
0: Um, I mean, there are so many times where, not just in, in terms of looking at the Trojan horse letter and the impact that this had in Birmingham schools, but all these other moments where British race relations come alive, that's like a drama on the stage, and you can see this conflict and this tension playing out. Another moment is in the episode where you're talking to Sue and Steve Packer who were two former teachers at Parkview who uh, raised complaints with the British Humanist Society who passed them on to Michael Gove uh, concerned about the creeping Islamization of the school. So could you tell me a little bit about that experience? It was like a mammoth seven hour interview or something. (laughs) Good memory, yeah. what it was like trying to make this thing which in britain is often so implicit and euphemistic which is how do people feel about race how do people feel about ethnic difference and trying to get it explicit enough to tell the story to to speak into being everything that you know is in the room already
2: you got to talk for 7 hours minimum <laughs> 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 um i mean you know, we that interview took a lot of preparation, is what I'll say. Like that wasn't like some casual, like, "Hey, we're just here to talk to these whistleblowers." Um, that interview came after the came off the back of about a summer, like three, two to three months of Hamza and me and our producer uh, Rebecca Lacks, like reviewing thousands of pages of documents, not all of which had d- directly had to do with the Packers, but with, you know, a bunch that did. And these are, you know, testimonies they'd given over the years, letters that they'd written or that we suspected they might have written that were anonymous, um, you know, kind of government records that trace their involvement um, in the whistleblowing in the affair. And so we just went, you know, we'd seen reading that gave us a picture of what might have happened. With them, but also raised a lot of questions about what happened. And we went in, like, we prepared that interview for days and days after spending a summer reading all this material. So I would chalk up anything that's kind of like coming through in there. It wasn't some, it was a lot of work to like think through, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I see like Sue saying something here. It's a little different this time. I wonder what accounted for that difference. Let's ask her about it. Let's show her this letter, see what she says about this. You know, I'm sensing in her testimony, like, a certain view that's, like, backed up by this other thing I think she wrote. Let's kind of, like, try and tease that that out. We're also not sure what Steve thinks of this. Like, they're two individuals, but they operate as a couple. Like, let's try to figure that out as well. Like, we just had a lot of questions because, luckily, we had a lot of material beforehand. I don't think the interview would have been as substantive or revealing if we hadn't had that to draw on and the time to prep it. I don't know if you agree, Hamza, but thinking through to, like... We really prepared for that interview a lot. It was no, a lot of work. It was like totally. literally months of preparation, if you think about it, in a way.
1: Totally. You know what I like to yeah. think about this, about that episode and, and, and that interview, is um, the episode, in kind of in, in, in some sense, is kind of divided into two parts. You, you meet Sue and Steve, and, and you hear them uh, share the story uh, of what happened at Parkview and, um, over the years and, and, and how, how it came to them whistleblowing. That's, um, that's, that's an experience that they've shared with Many many reporters in England, um, anonymously sometimes on the record, sometimes anonymously. But that is a version of, of the narrative of Park View, which they have sat opposite reporters before and, and spoke to,
2: and not just reporters. Yeah, yeah, investigators.
1: Exactly. And if you just pause that episode halfway through, that's basically uh, the Packers' experience of like journalism in Britain. It's just they they will mm. tell you that, and then that's it. And what happens in part two is because we just, as Brian said, we spent two months actually looking through um, their stories, following up with people, seeing where the evidence base was. And part two is what you hear, in my opinion, if you just do some work. You know, if you not just listen to people and take what they're saying uh, in good faith, but actually go figure it out. Because that's what I thought we were supposed to do as reporters. Um, And when, for example, Brian got in touch with... um, A Muslim woman who used to work at Parkview, who Sue Packer has been speaking about for many years in different settings um, and shared this very specific uh, episode that happened. It's shocking. It's shocking that nobody Mm. else at any point, no reporter, no investigator, no lawyer who was involved in the misconduct hearings, ever bothered just to email this person and said, hey, listen, so we've got a statement to this effect from Sue Packer and we just want to run that. By you, just to kind of uh confirm some of these details because when Brian did um the reply was, was was pretty spectacular you know um
0: I mean that's that's one grenade that I don't want to spoil for listeners because for me it was just like a real stop in the street I was outside the fishmongers and I can remember it really well and I just like stopped stock still and I was like <laughs> Oh my god! Like while staring at like a decapitated salmon. Um, <laughs> Very vivid. It was. It was I'd, like like yeah. I, I remember. I just remember that listening experience so clearly. But do you think that this is a sort of central question for how this hoax letter became a moral panic? Um, it is this question of who is deemed credible. And who isn't deemed credible? Because you have all of these contested accounts. The Clark report says Parkview teachers, uh, you know, contest many of the allegations contained in this report. But there's not much space given to the contestation of the allegations. Whereas somebody like Sue Packer is taken at face value in a way that uh, the Muslims who are under suspicion weren't taken at face value.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's totally part of it. Like like the question of credibility and who's, cre- who's seen as credible, who's taken as credible by the system, whose who's, um, issues are given more weight. I mean, I think that's all. And that's a very insidious thing, right? Because it's like it operates in a million little decisions and big decisions that happen every day. Um, but I think that's also paired with a lot of other things. And that's. A cynical use of what was happening you know for political ends ideological ends um you know so it's like all the above you know i don't think it's all totally like innocent implicit bias kind of stuff you know Mm -hmm. like like there's a there's a whole like nasty mess of things going on i think
0: i mean i I want to get onto like the ideological stuff in a second but kind of on this thing of who gets taken as credible how why and when um this isn't covered in the podcast as far as i can tell but in April 2014, the Sunday Times interviewed five Birmingham head teachers, uh, only one of whom was still in their post. And they all talked about the tr- original Trojan horse letter, the anonymous letter, as being credible. So one of the head teachers says, When I received the Trojan horse letter in February, I wasn't surprised. I read the letter and thought, yeah, that goes on. So this is a point where politicians like Michael Gove are being briefed, like, this is a hoax, it's bogus. Uh, Birmingham City Council has a pretty good idea that this isn't a credible letter. And yet the media is treating it as credible. And something's going on in Birmingham schools that you have these individuals who feel that it's saying something real about their own experiences and observations how do you account for that how do you account for that at the level of of the media and also how do you account for that at the level of these head teachers who are talking about it like yeah this is what i see every day
2: yeah we honed it yeah that video is interesting um i mean that's kind of what i mean about like this letter is shot through everything like if you think about those you know those are people who very well those head teachers very well may have been talking to the peter clarks of the world and sitting there and kind of like you know talking the way they talk in that video which is about the moment they read the Trojan horse letter, which is a bogus document, and talking about it as if it was a thing that was really happening to them. Um, and so I think it preyed on that letter and the tropes within it, preyed on fears and was very shrewd in a way, because you know there were tensions happening in East Birmingham and elsewhere in the country um, over kind of the makeup and the religious makeup of schools. You had people who were, you know, like long festering resentment about poor academic standards in a lot of these um, majority British Pakistani schools, majority Muslim schools. So you had people coming in who were fixing that, you know, and like kind of a a movement of self-determination to take take control of their own schools and make them better academically, but also to, you know, as Tahir Alam and others in the movement say, openly change the, ethos of them, to have a more Islamic ethos. That's not something they were hiding. It's something that was being praised by authorities, you know, offstead when they inspected. Like it wasn't a a clandestine thing, but not everybody agreed with it. And that's clear from, you know, the Packers interview, those head teachers. And there's also a context happening where um, schools were being taken over. Schools that weren't doing well were being taken over. And so Head te- leadership was being changed. Head teachers were being held to account in a different way. Um, and I think a lot of them felt it as um, it did feel different. It felt like something different was happening. And something different was happening. And it's in that context that these kind of claims are happening like, you know, like a changing character of the school, people standing up and, and giving leadership of schools a hard time. Sometimes leadership being pushed out and replaced with other leadership. There's also the academies program, which was like going wild at the same at the same time. There's like all these different things that are happening. But they're all like the normal stuff of democracy, the way the way I see it, and civic participation and civic disagreement. And then it's shot through with this with this this very dangerous letter and this very dangerous idea. And that's what I see happening like in something like that video. I don't know. That's a complicated answer to your question, but I don't know if that answers it. I mean, but.
0: Uh, I guess for me then the the follow-up and I wonder if this is something you can speak on Hamza is then what is the impact of the government's decision to look at that messiness it's a messiness to do with community participation uh, the room for religion in non-denominational schools how you deal with uh, failing and underachieving schools what's the impact of the government's decision to deal with all those things through the lens of national security and counter terrorism
1: well this is the, the, that that was my issue all along right some of some of these issues some of these topics some of these themes absolutely deserve a good faith conversation people from different perspectives let's figure this out you know there was a program that was rolled out uh, or attempted to be rolled out in east birmingham a few years ago called no outsiders and it was basically about it was like um some kind of uh, curriculum to teach about homosexuality in in, in schools and some of the people who were, um, it had like a huge backlash, those protests outside schools, people were basically absolutely against this um, new kind of uh, initiative. Um, what doesn't help is that because of the Trojan horse, some of the people, I knew some of the people who were in that protest. Like I'd spoke to a few parents who had kids in these Trojan horse schools back in 2014. And then when this issue arose, they decided to get really get involved. Reason being is... Once you put someone in, this, in the spectrum of like, this is um, counter-terrorism, this is extremism, and you are forcing these um, kind of programs onto them from that, uh, from that kind of uh, approach, you're going to get animosity. You're going to get rejection. You're going to get people protesting for the sake of just like, no, we're not going to be uh, treated in this way. Whereas in reality, these the, like that kind of program, these kind of curriculums, stuff like this should be discussed with people. There should be, you know, it, th- there's a way to approach this where you're not immediately saying you guys are a threat and uh, and a way for mm. us to elevate you out of that is to kind of force these kind of things on you. Um and then you're gonna get that kind of reaction. I think that's what the uh, ultimately the legacy of the Trojan horse was. It was basically causing a causing a um fracture between people in communities like Alam Rock and the education of their kids and the government and and the country as a whole and like their initiatives and kind of uh, whatever their ideas about for um curriculums. I feel like that could have been done in a much more harmonious way where you kind of are paying attention to people's backgrounds and trying to accommodate it within those kind of um that kind of prism.
0: I I don't know if you guys have seen, but uh, Rockwood Academy, which is the school which replaced Parkview, introduced Mm -hmm. a combined cadet force, which is like army training for school children. And then in 2016, it was visited by the defense secretary. It was praised. It was saying that this combined cadet force was evidence that Rockwood was rising like a phoenix from the ashes (laughs) uh, out of the Trojan horse scandal. So I guess I I just want to talk about, one, the political opportunism, and two, is there something specific about uh, British foreign policy and security apparatus which helped amplify this as a scandal and, and meant that you know the government at the time was obviously going to turn this into a big deal because it had political value there were rewards for doing so
1: I mean I can theorize about some of this stuff but um it would just be based on opinion it wouldn't be based on anything that I can kind of uh
0: I think as long as it comes to that caveat you are allowed
1: <laughs> um wait do you have something to say to this no go ahead Okay, um, I feel like there's, there, there's, um, there's, an, there's an idea, there's an understanding in like, British authorities and just around the world in general, about like how do we, um, how do we feel most, most comfortable with, with our, our Muslim citizenry. And I feel they've learned their own approach, which is just like, if we can make them feel less Muslim and more British, then I think that's a way that like, they will be less dangerous to us in some sense, right? They're seeing this kind of Muslim identity, because Muslim identity means you are, in some sense, plugged into a globalized network, you know, um, you identify with Muslims all around the world. In some sense, I feel like they feel if, if you don't sever that um, way of thinking about themselves, if they don't front load the fact that they're British first and Muslim second, then they're going to be some kind of threat because if we do go and have an adventure in the Middle East, they're somehow going to internalize that as an attack on them here um, at home. And I feel like there's, again, this is me talking, please, I am not an academic or a scholar or any of this stuff. This is just me theorizing. I feel like all of these ideas of just like the British cadet program or the British values and everything like this, it's an attempt to make you feel more British and less Muslim because then you might be um, less bothered about what Britain's doing in certain parts of the world. And it's a ridiculously stupid idea. And I think it has, for the past two decades, proved itself to just be uh, a dumb, dumb kind of way to approach this um, situation. But I feel like that's part of what was happening there. It's like, if you have kids in a British school who are being told to be proud of themselves, being told to be proud of their culture, being told to be proud of their religion, in some sense, the state thought does that make them, like, feel less British? And how do we kind of, you know, how, is that going to um, affect us in terms of their integration? Which is just not the way to go about it, you know? Um, so to what extent Rockwood Academy was kind of, like, trying to um, mitigate against years of, like, Parkview and, and, and kind of the values they would instilled, I'm not sure. Um, but I always see bits like this as just an attempt to kind of sever the feeling that you are some kind of globalised Muslim ummah and make you feel more just like I am a specific national to this country. And I will always be loyal to them above all else.
0: I mean, to the best of your knowledge, have there ever been any Department for Education investigations into whether Christianity has undue influence in non-faith schools? You know, is there a metric for determining whether schools become too religious or culturally distinctive in the state sector?
2: That's a good question. I don't know that we like specifically looked into that, but I haven't I'm not aware of anything, Um, like with a a school with a Christian ethos, for instance. Um, Yeah, no, I'm not aware of anything. It's a good question. I'd be curious to know.
0: So thinking about how how this podcast has been received, and one of the things I think is really important to point out is that there is a very thorough reading and questioning of... The Clark Report, which was the one which was uh, commissioned by the Department for Education. Peter Clark was uh, the ex-national head for counterterrorism, I believe. That's right. And this podcast goes through and really troubles how a lot of um, you know, these allegations were made and how reliable um, it is. Now, as far as I know, nobody has put that to Michael Gove asking is he personally troubled by the fact that you guys have have um questioned the reliability of the Clark report I know this is returning a bit to an earlier question but i you surprised that it's not a bigger story in British political media you know that you don't have Laura Koonsberg shoving a microphone up Michael Gove's nose and saying you know minister are you you know worried
2: I mean, I wish it was. I you you guys do have a lot happening over there right now, and I do think there's an atrophy that's happening. Um, I mean, I you know I, I sense it in myself, and certainly in the U.S. of like, um, just this atrophy of trust in government officials and in you know the official work of of the government and the state. So I could see that possibly, like you know, of course they're you know of course they like you know, there's some issues in that report. Like, you know, what's the big deal? Is that actually a story, you know, when you've got the parties happening mm. uh, in Downing Street or whatever? Like, I don't know. Like, like I can imagine that. But I do <laughs> think it's an important story. Like, that's our job as journalists is to stay vigilant against that stuff. Like, we can't, you know, um, relent and let that become normalized. Um, I mean, we wrote Michael Gove a couple times. We sent a bunch of the issues we found in the Clark Report to, um, you know, his people, and we never heard back. Um, so, yeah,
0: there has been a bit of movement, uh, from conservative MPs and a conservative MP this morning tweeted, Brummies don't want their kids taught terrorism, conspiracy theories, or girls are unequal to boys in response to Khaled Mahmood, a labor MP who wrote to the times defending the Clark report. Now this thing about kids being taught terrorism, conspiracy theories, as far as I can tell, that's a new allegation. I don't know um, what she's talking
1: about. That's not even the Clark report, so she'd have to explain where that one comes from.
0: But what do you think that's about, that you <sighs> have a conservative MP concocting a brand new allegation in order to defend the integrity of the Clark report?
2: I mean, that's the, pr- like, like, we're, this story exists in, like, I'm trying to, I've been trying to think of the right metaphor, and I don't know that I can, but, like, it exists in this warped space like that's what the trojan horse letter did you know like it exists in this warped space where anytime you try to treat it like you normally would with like an allegation and a rebut you're like operating in this twilight zone that's just like you're, you're operating in the wrong frame of reference in the first place and that's what we were trying to do with our reporting is try to somehow like bend back you know like the frame of reference that people are talking about this in like plot or no plot terrorism takeover all that like there were disagreements about how schools should be run in a local city. And there were arguments on both sides, and there were management disputes, and you know what I mean? Like, that's what was happening. Um, And anytime you have someone, like, raising an allegation like that, like, to even rebut it, I, I feel that gives it validity, the way of talking about what this was. Like, this wasn't that. That's not what this was. We need to move past that. And that's, like, really what the work of the last few years, like that we've been trying to do is, it's just in every interview, like, like, I remember sitting with like, I think it was Bridget Jones, the deputy leader of the Birmingham City Council at one point where she was kind of doing this kind of response of like, well, the you know, we we're trying to talk about the letter and the and, you know, the moment the kind of months before this became a national scandal before the Trojan horse letter was public, when the Birmingham City Council was just dealing with this like partial, poorly copied, unsigned, undated, anonymous letter. Like that's the world they were operating in for a while before it became this other conversation. And, you know, she kept saying, well, the reports that came after and the investigations. And like, I remember at one point, I think I kind of took my hands. I was like, but I want to move you back. Like there was a time before all that. (laughs) There was a time before all that. Like come with me in a time machine to before all that happened. When what you were staring at was this letter that was ridiculous. Tell me about that. Like, tell me about what was happening in that space because nobody's seeing clearly now. Like, nobody's seeing clearly, and it's so hard to have a conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just I just wish those MPs just listened to the podcast. Um, you know, like would, that, I mean, listen. I'm I'm not saying they haven't, but like from some of their tweet threads, I I would I would like to gamble on the fact that they haven't. Um, it would be nice listen to episode six. Don't even listen to the whole thing. Just listen to episode six. And uh and then let's have a conversation about clock Report.
0: Or read the transcripts, which are very helpfully provided. There you go. On yeah. Oh, they're the
1: up. NYT. Yeah. Nice, they're oh, up. We didn't even uh, know that. Great, yeah. Okay. Great. I take it back. Don't even listen. Just read the transcript <laughs> of episode six. Um I don't know. And then let's have a conversation about the clock report. The music slaps. I think
2: you should listen. You should definitely yeah.
0: listen. <laughs> oh yeah, no, the, the music was great. The music was great. Um I mean there are all these tweet threads coming out from Nick Timothy, who is a columnist but also ex-advisor to Theresa May. Sonia Soda, Sonny Hundle. Do you ever feel a bit like there's a closing of the ranks against you? And perhaps there is, either by accident or design, a consensus amongst the British media establishment to ignore or disparage what's been raised in your investigation.
1: You called it, Hamza. And
2: in the last episode, I think Hamza kind of calls this.
1: I was going to say, I don't yeah. think it's it's just, again either listen or read the transcript of episode eight. Like, it's, uh, you know, for a while, actually, when we we're putting this story together, um, uh, we would be having this conversation about, like, so what, what's what's going to happen when we put this out? And I was like, nothing, you know? Like, I, just, it's it's the same reporters who were around in 2014. Like, what do you think is going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And people were looking at me like, well, you don't know. You don't know. And I, And I was, like, adamant to put a bit of that in episode eight just because... It's not a surprise. I know how this was going to work. What is surprising, I must say, and I think like for British Muslims in Britain, like um, for them to kind of make sense of, is that like, it's a bipartisan kind of, um, you know, issue. Like, like, it's not even just like the papers you might expect who are hostile to Muslims usually, who are like, um, you know, coming out against this podcast. It's, it's people from all sorts of, uh, you know, across the political spectrum. And that's something for British Muslims to think about. In terms of I like, I feel for uh, you
2: guys. I always think about like you're kind of like politically homeless. Yeah, like yeah. I don't know. Or that mm. struck me doing this story. I don't yeah. know. You guys will know better than me, but I've just wondered about that. Yeah, yeah.
1: commentators in every paper. Um, just look at the way they're speaking about this podcast and, and, and internalize what that means as far as a British Muslim, um, and who you're, you know, who you can, um, who you can turn to, um, and it's frightening. It's a frightening thought.
0: I mean, the frightening thought is that there doesn't have to be a conspiracy of silence. There just has to be a critical mass of people in positions of power, whether that's local government, individual schools, newspapers, national government, willing to believe the worst about your community. And because a rumor or a piece of information fits a dominant narrative that they have, that this community is backward or worse than everybody else, then the same standards of stress testing a claim don't apply.
2: Yeah. I mean that's racism, isn't it?
0: Uh, um yeah. I mean maybe, maybe to sort of like uh lift myself out of like the funk mm. just place myself in, I want to talk a bit about how the podcast foregrounds the work of journalism. And there's this like buddy cop dynamic between the two of you it's like the veteran and the rookie the brit and the yank the muslim and the white guy (laughs) um were you aware of that from the start or was it in the edit you were like we can make this like cagney and Lacey go to birmingham
2: (laughs) (laughs) we weren't aware at the start about the buddy comedy framing Um,
1: That was something we became aware of. I mean, I didn't like him for a long time. So that, you know, for for, for a while. (laughs) We were living a buddy comedy. That's how they work. That's the whole arc. It's true. Um, It's
0: like classic odd couple. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: But we did at some point in the edit start thinking about buddy comedies. But I will say, like, I'd done this before. You know, kind of like part of my interest in the story, an important part of my interest in the story was the fact that Hamza was doing it. Hamza's mm. hunger to know the answer to this question, how much this bothered Hamza, the fact that it happened in his city, the fact that he did feel connected to the story and and done wrong by, you know, how the story had been handled. Um like all and the fact that it was his first story. All that was like part of like I don't think I would have if someone had just said like hey you should take on this story alone. I don't think that that would have um drawn me in the same way. I know that it wouldn't have drawn me in the same way that that Hamza bringing the story to me did. And so I always kind of sensed that at least like Hamza's experience would be part of the story. Um, that made sense? I didn't know that, by the way. This, that, that was... I told you, you just didn't... I wasn't listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I mean, so, how did you yeah. change
0: each other? Or did you change each other through working on the story together?
2: Oh, totally. To- I mean, I uh, yeah. certainly... I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I talk a bit about it in the show, but like... Um, you know, it wasn't just working with Hamza. A lot of, you know, conversations have been opened up in our field in the last couple of years, especially after the summer of 2020 and the, the murder of George Floyd, about um, kind of these longstanding conventions that we expect people in journalism to adhere to, these ideas of objectivity or impartiality, you know, quotes around these words um, that... Uh, like I hadn't questioned that much and still I, until I was like working so closely with Hamza, you know, and I mm-hmm. edited lots of reporters. I produced lots of reporters, um, you know, from different backgrounds. And, and, and I don't work for some stodgy old newspaper. I work, you know, at a, at a radio show where I think we pride ourselves on pushing the envelope and, you know, being, you know, there's, there's room for creativity and point of view. And even still working alongside Hamza like I realized i like i i haven't i still have ideas that I've been enforcing on the work and the people I work with in a way that i I didn't appreciate um and so that was that's certainly something that you know I learned through i mean the whole I think process. like
0: early on like when you're in that shisha bar which also the thought of like an american journalist in a shisha bar i just found like inherently hilarious but when you're Wait, in why shisha why bar, Hans, why it's just it's just funny it's like a classic fish out of water <laughs> thing like you know i kind of picture you like surrounded by like somali uncles and i'm like this is great <laughs> this, is, like, this is what 21st it was it was a bit of that is. scene yeah
1: it yeah, yeah. was yeah yeah that yeah. specific one is, 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 is there's a scene. great
2: shisha scene in birmingham i will say that that was like our main kind of kick yeah. back at the end of the day for sure
0: you're like oh this i'm lining my lungs with like um <laughs> kind of you know synthetic strawberry flavor and it's great exactly yeah. um but i think in that shisha bar hamza you talk about really being motivated by a sense of i want to change things with journalism otherwise what's the fucking point point? and then at the end of episode eight you're talking about like this is not going to have the transformative impact that i wanted it to have do you feel that maybe in a weird way you've come round to Brian's original position, which is, it just has to be a good story?
1: No, I, don't, I'm, I'm, I will never internalize that. Like, I think um, I will quietly accept it if that's the outcome, but I will never kind of make that the intention um, from the beginning. Um, I just don't think we'd take the story to, I don't think we would have taken this story, but I think stories in general. I don't think you you, you would get them anywhere near where you need to get them to if you begin with this premise of just like, well, I'm just trying to tell an interesting interesting story, you know? I'm going to meet characters, I'm going to get their perspectives, I'm going to put this package together, I'm going to tell you just like a narrative of what happened in 2014. No, I feel like drive to the truth, make sure you're determined to get it, make sure you're determined to seek out accountability and keep pushing for that, pushing for that, pushing for that, and you're going to get the other stuff. You're going to get the story, you're going to meet the characters, you're going to get your narrative, but just as long as you are driven by this has to matter, Otherwise, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? My issue with stuff like this, and, and, and Trojan Horse is a good example, is that like, because it had been done by so many reporters, because the story had been covered so widely, you get bored. It doesn't seem like mm. a fresh th- uh, uh, you know, take. Like, I want to go and look at the Birmingham you know, uh, 2014 case by the Trojan Horse. Why? Everyone's looked at that story. So I feel a responsibility to just be like, if you are going to do this story, then try to take it to the end, try to make sure you get what you need to get, because by the process of you doing it, you've made it stale now. You've made it stale. Oh, they've done the Trojan horse. Don't worry about it. So if you mm-hmm. aren't the one who gets the evidence, if you aren't the one who proves a certain thing, then I feel like you have, you know, you should, you should, you should internalize that. You should know what that means because you made it much harder for someone else then to follow up and basically go to their editor and go, I want to do the Trojan horse story now. They'd be like, "Why?" Well, it's just been done, you know? So I feel mm-hmm. like once you've committed to doing a story, then commit to doing it all the way. And, you know... Um, until the day we broadcast this thing, until it came out, I hadn't given up on trying to take the, take it to a certain place. Um, I was still hopeful mm-hmm. we'd sent out a bunch of writer replies. I thought maybe that could shake some, shake something loose. Like, I, you know, I remain disappointed about where we where we um, took this um, podcast. And, you know, that's and that's okay. I, I'm I'm comfortable being disappointed. I kind of live in that space, so, you know, it doesn't bother me that I feel like we failed in some sense. Like, I think everyone should have that feeling if they've decided to take on a story and not completed it.
0: I mean, wasn't it um, Akmal de Costa who said that time is on the side of truth? And I thought on the side of truth, oh, is time. that is yeah. some real uncle wisdom, yeah, right there. Like, I mean, that's a man who um, who,
2: who saw you know lived through and saw apartheid fall, so he has that perspective. Mm. You know, like yeah, I mean, he's a remarkable person, but um, yeah, he just brings that perspective. Like he's seen dramatic change, you know, happen in front of his eyes and seen how long it it took. So he, you know, it's um. Yeah, it's useful to have a guy like that around.
0: <laughs> I mean, I've got, I've got one last question, and I guess this is mostly for Hamza, because you do leave the podcast with this question mark hanging over whether or not you see a future for yourself in journalism. Um, where do you stand now? Because we are hiring. <laughs>
1: um, and, you know, that maybe was, our pay that was, that isn't sh- competitive with Serial, but, you know, we've got
0: a lovely contract. Four day week. That was the shrewdest shrewdest thing for you
2: to say in the podcast because he's just getting job offers left and right. Every interview that was so shrewd
1: from very (laughs) unexpected places. People you think wouldn't necessarily want to take me on. That's basically how every interview's been um, ending. To be like, do you want to? Didn't the coffee shop just try to hire you? Yeah, they were (laughs) like, I hear you're looking for a job. (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I need just to sleep. Quite honestly, I need to sleep. I need to sleep sleep for a couple of months. I am. I, I I know I'm going to tell stories. That's what I know for sure. That's what I can definitely tell you. Is I know I'm going to tell stories. What I call myself when I, or, you know, when I'm doing that, I don't know. Like that, that remains um, up in the air. But I'll definitely be doing stories.
0: Thank you guys so much for joining me and for making the time. And I guess the thing that I just want to say is that as a journalist who is also a British Muslim and someone who has felt all of those things that you described going through that conflict between the ideals of journalism and then your actual reality of trying to do this work Uh, as somebody who has also seen how the Trojan horse myth has shaped and determined policy which has touched nearly every aspect of our lives. I just want to say thank you for doing this work. Thank you for being so diligent and thank you for having a banging soundtrack because that (laughs) always helps.
1: Thomas Miller. Thomas Miller. Yeah. Ash that's
2: really kind thank you so much thanks so much for your interest and your good questions
1: and just for your work yeah. through the years Ash like you know yeah, I've, I've said fans. this to you before yeah. like I'm a huge huge fan of yours you know um, oh stop it no I'm serious I'm serious you are like, you're <laughs> the one you, like you know it's people like you who create the space for even me to start thinking about journalism so like you know thank you um, for existing and doing, this, doing the stuff that you've you're going
0: really to need that injunction <laughs> to see why they try to get one out now <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you guys so much
1: all right take care
2: This broadcast is brought to you
0: by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.